Well, I don't know how your college team did this weekend in football. Mine fired its coach. And uh, I am grateful that uh, my eternal destiny is not dependent on 18 to 21-year-olds on the, the football field. Um, so the scriptures have a lot of descriptions of things that are fantastic. And sometimes you wonder, what did that really look like to see that happen? In the Old Testament, perhaps it was the children of Israel crossing through the Red Sea. Or perhaps seeing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery furnace and yet they were unscathed. Or perhaps it's Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, where these bones come together, flesh comes on them, and the Spirit speaks life into them. It's kind of like reverse anatomy, right? Or in the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water, or reaching out and healing a man with leprosy that no one would touch, or even his own resurrection from the dead. And then looking forward, what will the resurrection from the dead look like for those of us who are in Christ? What will that look like? This is a question that so perplexed the church at Corinth that there were some that were ready to jettison this important doctrine, this important part of the gospel message. And so we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for the last two weeks, and we're going to be there today if you want to open up your Bibles there. But there were some that were saying, you know what, there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul painstakingly takes 57 of the 58 verses to bring correction and clarity to this dispute about the hope of the resurrection, the hope that we have in Jesus. At the beginning, he talks about how it was part of the gospel message that he proclaimed. The resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And goes on to tell about the 500 plus witnesses of Jesus being risen from the dead. Of which he was one. A hostile witness, if you will. He didn't believe until Jesus appeared to him. Second of all, he points out the hypocrisy of saying, I believe this gospel, yet jettisoning this part of the gospel. And going down the trail that if there is no resurrection of the dead, folks, this faith is in vain. It's futile. You have a dead Savior. No, He is alive. And helping them understand that Jesus' return is when the resurrection would take place. And at that point, Jesus will bring all authority and dominion under His feet and then ultimately turn it over to the Father. All dominion and authority, including death, under his feet. So the last part of this chapter, which we're going to be looking at today, Paul will be painting a picture using an analogy or analogies of what the resurrection will look like. Then for them and for us. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to pick it up with me in verse 35 to verse 44. And we'll read together here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? 
With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body as He is determined, and each kind of seed gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. And fish another. There are also heavenly bodies. And there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. And the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon another. And the stars another. The stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We're going to stop right there. We'll continue with the rest of this passage. But let me pray for us. So Lord God, we are talking about eternal things. We are talking about what happens to us all when this life is done. So would you open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see what you have in your word. Would you show us the hope of the resurrection that comes in Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you take the words that I have prepared and use them to sow hope into our, our lives. We are grateful for this word. We're grateful for the hope that it brings. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to revel in it, to enjoy it, and to be hope and praise-filled today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Paul, at the beginning of this, verse 35, really parrots back to the Corinthians what they're wrestling with. How are the dead raised? What kind of body, with what kind of body will they come? You see, this church is more influenced by the Greek culture around them than they are by the gospel itself. You see, the thought of a resurrected body for the Greek, in their mind, it's an oxymoron. In their mind, to be truly spiritual, you want to be set free from the body, set free from its limitations, set free from all of its foibles and sickness. And so they're asking the question, what kind of body? What kind of body? Is it going to be a, a half-decayed body? Kind of like some of the movies we see where skeletons are walking around or barely limping around? Or, or will it be a reconstituted body, but still limited, still foible, still prone to weakness? And Paul's answer to them seems kind of harsh. He says, how foolish. He literally says, you're being a fool. And he's framing that term fool in the term of the Old Testament motif. That is one who does not account for God in, in acting and how they live and how they act. 
In fact, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're acting like there is no God. But here's the truth about the gospel. That's the good news. God has entered history in the person of Jesus Christ. He has paid our penalty for our sin. And He has risen from the dead. He has intervened. And He's going to intervene when, on that day, when He resurrects us. He says, don't you see it? So Paul seeks to bring some understanding. So in doing so, he's going to bring some analogies. The first of which is an analogy analogy of seeds and of somas. Now, soma is the Greek word for body. I'm just using it for alliteration, but... So this is the analogy of seeds and somas, or, or seeds in the body. Look at verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant a body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and each the kind of seed he gives it its own body. Basically pointed to the commonplace experience that these people have in, in planting seeds, putting them in the ground. <clears throat> that seed, that body that goes into the ground looks so much more different than what comes up out of the ground. Whether it's wheat, eventually growing up into a stalk, whether it's corn, which it's plentiful around here where you see it growing up to a tall stock with, with ears on it. it. looks totally different than that little teeny kernel. An oak tree that starts in the ground. It's just this little round kind of capsule. Eventually grows up with branches. And you see the acorns at the end of it. But that's the potential that is in there. You could look to, we could look to just the animal world, Right? tadpoles that eventually become frogs or caterpillars that eventually become butterflies but he's basically saying don't be mistaken the resurrected body will have some similarities with this natural body but it will be markedly different markedly different in one area will be the type of flesh that it has look at verse 39 not all flesh is the same People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, a fish another. <laughs> we probably best understand this from our dinner table, right? The different consistencies or textures of meats, whether it's beef or fish or chicken or pork. Even so, our fleshly bodies will be different in the resurrection. Jesus returns, right? And he has flesh. He has nail scars in his hands, in his feet, a spear pierced in his side, and yet his body was decidedly different. Somehow he was able to come into a room that was locked. I don't know what all the qualities that he had, but it says, the scripture says, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, it says in 1 John, verse 3, chapter um, Chapter 3, verse 2. Secondly, we'll be different in our glory. Look at verse 40. 
There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars differ in splendor. They're earthly bodies, seas, lakes, oceans, rivers, valleys, mountains, plains, each having their own type of splendor or glory is the literal word there. And then there are heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, planets, and galaxy, each having their own kind of splendor. Here's something I want you to notice just as, as this passage move on, moves on. Paul is slowly moving us toward the heavenly, if you will. Most bodies here on earth, though, their glory is revealed by usually the light of a heavenly body. There can be an ocean there, but there's nothing glorious about it unless somehow the sun shines on it, or the moon reflects on it, or the stars are illuminating it. And even so, the moon itself, its glory is revealed when it reflects the sun. And even so, the glory that we believe we have on this earth, it will be greatly changed and magnified as we are resurrected by the one who came from heaven to give us life, to give us his glory. You know, as maybe you've read through the Gospels, there's a moment where Jesus goes up on the mountain of transfiguration. At that moment, his glory in heaven is revealed. The scripture says in Mark chapter uh, 9, verse 31, that, that his clothes glowed like no fullers uh, or someone bleaching white can make it happen. He was like glowing. That was not because Jesus sent his clothes out to be, to be pressed and cleaned because his glory was being shown there. We will be like him in that glory. Also in power, verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. See, as we see in these verses, there is no denying our human frailty, weakness, mortality. We see, as we'll see in the verses to come, we have inherited from our forefather a nature a sinful nature in which the wages of sin is death. But, but in Christ, what is described as perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, it becomes the gateway. The gateway for life that is imperishable, that is raised in glory, that is raised in power, and Paul uses this point to point out that there is a natural body. A natural body. That's what we have right here. It's actually the word 
we use for soul, psyche. It's a psyche body, if you will. It's natural. And its only hope is that it will be raised as a spiritual body. When Paul uses this word spiritual body, he's not talking about a ghost or it being immaterial or without a body, but transformed by the Spirit. And Paul uses this to point toward the types of lives we inherit, one in Adam, one in Christ. So he points to the contrasting legacies of Adam and of Christ. Look at verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not, excuse me, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of dust of the earth. The second man was of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Two natures contrasted. The first Adam, whom God breathed life into, he became a living being, literally a living soul out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. He was able to receive life, but he's not able to impart it. He's only able to impart death because of his own sin. Jesus, on the other hand, is the second Adam. And he's called a life-giving spirit. Not, again, that he's a phantom or a ghost, but he was the Word who became flesh, as 1 John 14 talks about, and dwelt among us. And he was able to impart life, as John 1, 4 says. In him was life, and that life was the light of all men. But there's a scope and sequence of this. Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. Adam, from whom we inherit our earthly soulish nature comes first. He's the first human. But Christ, who existed before Adam, his humanity comes later to counteract that soulish nature, to counteract that fallen nature. And then there's the origins. Verse 46. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Adam was created of the dust of the earth. Jesus, who was God before time, put on flesh, and he entered into history. This really is a revisiting of what Paul said earlier in this chapter, verses 21 through 23. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So again, two realities. What we inherit from Adam is a sinful, soulish nature, and death comes. Death comes to all men and women. Number two, 
in Christ, we inherit life. Being made alive to be resurrected, to escape the trap of death through faith in the second Adam, who was also a man, but so much more. Who's God in the flesh. That's why we find it pretty important to celebrate Jesus coming to earth. He wasn't just a beautiful baby that lay in a manger. He was God who put on flesh and changed everything. And so we are image bearers, verse 49. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Yes, we bear the image of Adam. And we will all walk through death's door. But as image bearers of the second Adam, we will move toward life in the resurrection. In line with his glory and that of Christ himself. I want to stop here for a second. Because two natures are on the table here. All of us have inherited the earthly nature through Adam, our forefather, who rebelled against the holy God. And the scripture says the wages of sin is death. The nature of the second Adam, Jesus, is available to all. But it's only available if you put your faith in him. You see, you can know about him. You can know that he lived, you can know that he died, you can know that he rose from the dead. But unless you put your faith, unless you put your trust, unless you put your confidence in that, what he has done, that nature is not for you. And that's your, that's your choice. Scripture that is, I saw in an end zone yesterday, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Later on in that same gospel, that same chapter, I should say, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. I'm not trying to make anyone feel badly today. I'm not trying to judge anyone. But it would be remiss of me as a proclaimer of the good news, especially about the resurrection, to assume that everyone has made that decision. I don't want this moment of life to pass by. The scripture says, to as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Friend, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do so. There's no magic formula. It is really an expression of your heart, your will. Saying, Lord Jesus, I believe in what you've done. That you came and lived a sinless life that I couldn't live. That you paid a penalty by dying on the cross that I couldn't pay. 
That's the thing. That's the bad news of the gospel. We can't do anything to reckon ourselves righteous to God. But God made a way in the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only paid our penalty, but He conquered the foe we couldn't conquer in rising from the dead. The grave could not hold Him. Death couldn't handle Him. And I want to encourage you, if you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus, to do so today. And it might be just a simple prayer of saying, Lord Jesus, I believe in You. I believe what You've done. Come to my life and change me. Give me the life that I don't have in myself. Forgive me of my sin and make me your own. Again, the words aren't magic. It's the expression of the heart. But friend, if you've not done that, I want to encourage you to do that today. And you can have life. Life in Him. So, okay, we've worked through the analogy. We've worked through the theology of the resurrection. We exchange one nature for another, that of Adam for that of Christ. Now Paul seeks to describe what I think is the indescribable, what is awesome and what is wonder-filled, which I call the reality of transformation. Look at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor is the perishable, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Again, we're coming to the fact that we will come face to face with our natural, soulish life. It will be unfit to inherit eternal life. It'd be like if I got launched up into outer space. My body would not be fit for that, for that atmosphere. First of all, a vacuum would just suck everything out of me. There's no oxygen there. I could not live. I need something to change. I need something greater than myself. And so do we need this. We need something to change. How our body operates and survives. Something beyond ourselves, beyond our knowledge, beyond our own resources, our own abilities. And it is completely dependent upon God. We must be transformed. You see, as Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ, we live in the now but not yet. We are a new creation, and yet we are not fully formed. And so listen, this is where it gets good. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. The last trumpet, that's the Old Testament reference to the day of the Lord. When Jesus will return. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to raise everyone who's put their faith in him. That's the first thing he's going to do. Raise them. And you know what? He's not going to be limited by any decay, by any dismemberment, by anything that happens. This is the God who spoke creation into being. If you got cremated, you know what? He can handle it. He can put it back together. But it's going to be totally different. And those of us who are alive when he shows up, we will be changed also. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 
It'll be bam, bam. Maybe faster than that. But a total transformation. The dead in Christ will be raised and changed. And the alive in Christ will be changed. And our mortal bodies will put on immortality because of Jesus Christ and his conquest of death. It's the transformation that we long for. Aaron read this earlier, but Paul said this in his letter to the Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I don't know about you, but that makes me long for that day. That's an exciting thought. And I still wonder, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? But is this just sentimental church speak? Or is this a reality? Is this where the rubber meets the road? I want to tell you, the meaning of this becomes more pronounced as death itself touches your life. When it visits you and it changes you and you experience its reality. For the Corinthians, for those who had fallen asleep asleep in Christ, as he mentions in verse 18 of this passage. My sister Mary and my brother Eric both lost their mothers just recently. Let me tell you, it changes your perspective. My wife lost her mother, Martha. And I've lost my own father a few years ago. And the 26 members of the church down in Texas that were killed, half of the congregation decimated. That changes your perspective. And brings home the reality of what God has for you. You see, there's a sense when death hits you that there is something wrong. This is not how it should be. You sense the alienation, you sense the hurt, you sense the pain. And as though death is mocking you, saying, I got you. But Jesus is saying, no. I have conquered the grave. And I am the first fruits of what's coming to you if you put your faith and trust in me. And I will raise you because I'm alive. You will live also. And so Paul turns it around and mocks death itself. Verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Basically Paul's paraphrasing Isaiah 51, 27. It says, 
he will swallow up death forever. He's giving it a victorious focus. This is how death will be defeated. It will no longer exist in the resurrection. And followed by a paraphrase of Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 that says, Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Paul says in verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, the resurrection removes the bite of death. It's like a lion that's been declawed and defanged. It may try and gum you to death. It may roar at you a whole lot. Ultimately, it can't take your life. Because the life is in Christ. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sin is emboldened by the law in that it makes accusations of guilt. It says, you can't keep God's law. Yes, you're right. I can't. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, our Savior, He has intervened. He steps in the way and he satisfies the law with a sinless life and he breaks the power of death by rising from the grave. And his victory is our victory. Commentator Gordon Fee says this, the long chain of decay and death inaugurated by Adam will finally be irrevocably broken by the last Adam. And so we are free and we need not be bound by fear of death or separation from our loved ones in Christ. That song we sang earlier, It Is Well With My Soul. If you know the story behind it, it is a man, businessman named Horatio Spafford who was a businessman and his business was crashing around him. He sent his wife and his daughters over to England to help out with the D.L. Moody crusade that was going on over there. And then he got a telegram saying all lost except one, his wife. He lost all four of his daughters. And the only way he could say it is well with my soul is to know that Jesus had his four daughters in his hand. That is the hope. And the scripture says, we grieve, but not as those without hope. Not as those without hope. And that, my friends, is where you can say it is well with my soul. And we, again, not need not be bound by the fear of death, by the fear of losing loved ones. I'll tell you, I miss my dad. I miss him every day. But I am so grateful that I will see him again one day because he had his faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why this is so important. This is why this is so important. And it changes 
the reality that we live for. This last section is just the preparation. The last verse is the preparation for the the resurrection. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The message of the gospel is not, hey, let's eat and drink and suck all the marrow out of life because tomorrow we die. No, it's saying, look, there's a different reality to live for. There's something greater than what we're living for. And yes, it's a call to give of yourself. It's a call to die to yourself. Jesus is going to say, if any man, any woman will come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross. They need to follow me. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it for Jesus and his gospel. But the reality in the resurrection is that there's nothing There's nothing that we sacrifice or lose on this side of heaven that won't be worth it. Because this is not all there is. There's something so much greater. That's why Jesus kept saying, don't store your treasure on this side of heaven. Store it in heaven. Live for my kingdom, my reality. And yeah, there's some great things on this side. But don't make this the end goal. Don't make this the end goal. In fact, I will tell you when we get on the other side of heaven, we will, we will wish we lived more purposely for his kingdom. We had given more. I can give myself to the Lord without fear or regret. I can know that my eternity is safe, secure, and sealed. It won't be taken away from me. Because I know that I am in Him. I pray that's true of each one of us. This is the hope of the resurrection. I hope you can revel in that. If you are in Christ, when He comes, we will rise with Him. Let me pray, and then I'll have the worship team close us. Lord God, I can only imagine what that will be like when you show up. And you change our bodies, which are still perishable, and make them like your own imperishable body. And there's a wonder, there's a mystery, there's an awe to that. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this with eyes of hope. You would help us to see this as the reality that we're heading toward and not get deceived by fear of loss on this side of heaven. Yes, there is a feeling of it, but our lives are secure in you. So would you give us grace to grasp that, to be living for that, to be confident in that and have hope in that. Not just wishful thinking, 
But it's guaranteed because you, Lord Jesus, have risen. So we look forward to that, Lord, when you come and you call us home to yourself. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen.